You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Fully Occupied. You can find us on your favorite listening platform. Uh, today's episode is a doozy. We got Chris Ressa on the show. Chris is the Chief Operating Officer of DLC Management. He also hosts a podcast called Retail Retold. Uh, we dive into the concept of digital versus physical stores. Um, I think you'll find through this conversation that Chris is betting heavily on the future of physical retail. Uh, We'll dive into why, uh, some of the ups and downs of e-commerce, and generally understand um, where the retail real estate market is headed uh, based on uh, current fundamentals in past uh, cycles. Uh, It's a great conversation. We hope you enjoy. Thanks. Chris, welcome to the Fully Occupied Show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Why don't you uh, give a little background on yourself for the audience? Uh, my name's Chris Ressa. I'm a father of two. Uh, I'm a husband, uh, you know, family man first. I am the chief operating officer at DLC. Uh, we are a uh, a landlord. We're a commercial real estate company um, that owns and operates um, multi-tenanted, grocery-anchored, and uh, power center shopping centers. Uh, we also have a net lease development arm. We have a general contracting business, um, and yeah. Cool. So, uh, how long have you been with DLC? Since two thousand seven. How has so you've been through a couple of different cycles in the in the commercial real estate space. I, I sure. guess um, talk a little bit about what's going on in the market right now, how that might compare to years past. Generally speaking, uh, you know, this is some of the largest, quickest rate hikes that I've been in from an interest rate perspective. So that's unique. Uh, I think the other thing that's unique is there's a huge dichotomy between the capital market space and the fundamentals on the ground at a real estate level. Normally, increased tenant demand is directly correlated with what I would call investment sale demand. And right now, investment sales are, transaction volume is extremely low. And for open air retail, the, the demand to lease space is some of the highest it's ever been. So that's a little unique. It'll be interesting to see if like you get to a place where, you know, you're buying in a market where prices are coming down, yet demand for space is increasing. Usually they're, they're correlated positively. Right. I mean, do you think that's a direct result of where the interest rates are today? I mean, it's just more expensive to borrow money and therefore yeah, people it, are on the sidelines? I think that's the easy answer. So I think it's less about the the cost of money, even though that plays a big factor. It's the uncertainty of the cost of money, right? It's, you know, the last 15 years had a really good insight as to the 
future of what the interest rates will be. And now that the, you know, there's this nonstop going up, the uncertainty of the capital markets and the liquidity in the market is causing the people to be on the sidelines. Yeah. Um, it's not just that they're higher. It's the uncertainty of how high. Yeah, um, no, one, no one wants to get caught catching the falling knife and then right. know, be, at, and the, be at the, yeah. And then, and so there, there's, there's that on that front, but that doesn't answer the comparison, right? That's the, that's the why on the investment sales on the, on the leasing side, you know, I think demand is, uh, robust for a lot of reasons. Um, some of which we'll get to in a little bit, but you know, we have this lack of new construction. This has been talked about a lot in open air retail. Right. There's been all this building of multifamily and industrial, but you know, show me how many new Walmart anchored shopping centers were built in the last five years. You know, I don't know if you can point to many. And so there's been a lack of new construction as spaces got filled, very few new deliveries to the market. So supply constrained. We've also been in a place where for, you know, some challenged retail, one of the things that's happened over the last decade is we've changed the use. So not only we were not building new retail supply, we were actually taking supply off the market, really constricting the supply. And that's been really good for demand because there's been you know, less opportunities for retailers and therefore um, it's pushing multiple retailers into you know, the same competing for the same space. And I think, you know, that's been really good. And to boot, you know, we've had, you know, coming out of COVID, we had some record retail sales. And typically retailers want to open stores when there's, you know, opportunity for, you know, increased sales growth. And all these factors have, you know, made the foundation at the fundamental real estate level really strong. Well, let's dig into that change of use a little bit that you've talked about over the last decade or so. Um, what, what are Describe some of these changes and, and what's driving them. Is it um, we've seen kind of the deterioration of like the traditional um, enclosed mall, right? A lot of malls closed. That's maybe one area where you know retailers started moving away from and then moving into different concepts. But there's also probably consumer behaviors that might be impacting you know how they want to shop and like where they want to shop and what demographics might be kind of playing into that. How has how has the use of retail changed over the last 10 years? So I was referring to, you know, just the fundamental imagination of the developer to say, okay, there's less retail demand for X property space box. Is there something else we can do with it? And we've seen it being turned into self-storage. We've seen it, we've seen it be turned into a multifamily apartment building. We've seen it be turned into... Uh, an industrial. And so the point being that you once had retail space that no longer Got actually it. exists. And so, so that's constraining supply and exactly you know, yeah. that. And then we're not building new. And then the other stronger retail space has been leased up. So you have a bigger constraint in supply. And so, you know, there used to be this tagline that we were overstored in America. Uh, I don't know that we are anymore. I would argue that we have, we're over digitally stored. I think we have way too many, and I don't think it's talked about enough. I think we have way too many online stores, and there's probably, 
you know, that's coming to roost. Um, the too many physical stores. I hated how that stat always got determined. It was just a comparison between other countries on a per capita basis. So I'm not sure that was the right way to evaluate if a country was overstored or not. You know, if you take the amount of retail space in America and you divided that by the, the or you took the total retail sales in America and you divide that by the total retail space in America, the sales per square foot of the average American square footage space for retail is a super productive store for most retailers. So then what does that mean? What that really means is you have some retailers that overperform and some retailers that underperform. And so I don't know that we had too many stores, but we had too many of the, the wrong stores at a time. And so um, I think that was what was getting missed. Um, and then it was really easy to take the narrative of e-commerce and buckle that in, you know, and couple that into the storyline that was going on about America being overstored. Yeah. So what did you mean by we have too many digital stores? Is you, you feel like that that is much of a, a narrative as anything where where because like we talk a lot on this show about, you know, offline online to, you know clicks to bricks right like some retailers having the you know strategy of like we want to meet our buyers where they're at right they're shopping online but maybe they also want to get I into a store that. and try things on they 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 might fill their shopping cart on the website but you know they want to pull the trigger online they'd rather go in the store and physically kind of interact with the brand and and the items that they're looking for um how, how have some of the tenants, I guess, that you guys do business with um, marry that kind of online and physical store um, footprint and, and what makes those types of companies successful, you think? So let me answer the first question, which is you asked the question, what do you mean we have too many digital stores? I, I mean the same thing as when people said we had too many physical stores. So... You know, what is the right number of physical stores in America? What is the right number of digital? I would tell you, we have, I just went on Google. I don't know the accuracy of the site. I like, as we were on this, I went on Google and it says there's 9.1 million online stores in the world and 2.5 online stores in America. So I don't know, depending on what quarter, 15% of total retail sales are done online. So you have 15% of the sales going to two and a half million stores. Let's see how many physical stores are there in America. Let's see if GPT knows. I wonder how much of it is Amazon's share of that. Oh, so they were like 50% tip for, uh, I don't know anymore, but how many physical stores are in America? Ah, the NRF says there's a million physical stores, 1.045. Uh, call it retail establishments as of, and this was as of 2020. So I think the number's off, but the point is let, you know, I think there's more than, I think there was more than a million then, but my point just generally is okay. How could you have 85% of the retail sales at like a million stores and, and 15% of total retail sales at two and a half million. And so I think the, now I don't think that number's right. I think there's, more physical than digital stores, or they're about equal. I don't know if anyone knows the number, let's get it. But the point is, 
they shouldn't even be close. If majority of the sales, 85% are at the physical locations. There should be more stores. How could there be even close to as many digital stores? What it means is we have way too many digital stores and there's probably going to be a reckoning at some point and of that. And, and the reason that has happened is, and what you're seeing, right? By the way, I'm a full believer the, that you need to meet the customer where they're at and, there sh- and, and, and retailers having a digital presence and digital native brands having a physical presence. That doesn't mean there's a lot of, there's not, you know, the, because the cost of entry was so cheap to build a digital store, people who aren't great operators but had a couple bucks because the cost of entry was cheap could open a store. But what that has all done in this explosion of digital stores has made the cost to get eyeballs on your website, the customer acquisition cost, has shot through the roof. And so we say all the time, customer acquisition cost is the new rent. And you know the cost of entry to open a digital store is less expensive than the cost of entry for a physical store. But the cost to scale and generate profit is more expensive digitally. And so um, I don't think anyone's talking about it because the, for many of the stores that open, they're low cost of entry. So if they fail, the reality is that it wasn't a significant investment, but I, it, it's, I'd, I'm hard pressed to find anyone that's to, to tell me that we don't have too many digital stores and yet no one's talking about it. Yeah, it's interesting because like you, if you drive by a strip center that's half vacant, and you see a bunch of shuttered stores, you're like, oh, that was a major failure. Right. Who was the idiot that put the store in that location, right? But nobody ever talks about the online well, stores just, that disappear off the internet because they can't many, compete you know, with web traffic to get their customers, right? How many Shopify stores fail? While the data is mixed, this is, from, this is the first thing that comes on, reconvert.com, it's a blog. I don't know the, it's from November 29th, 2022. I don't know the accuracy. But it says, while data is missed, the best evidence we have suggests that only about 10% of Shopify stores succeed. <laughs> yeah, well, you, the, the narrative is that <laughs> you can make a lot of money selling shit online, but, you know, there's a, there's a uh, high barrier of, of, of success when you actually get open and, and you start competing with those other 2.5 million stores on the Internet for, for customers. That narrative is no different, right? You can make a lot of money doing a lot of different things. You can make a lot of money in the waste management business. You can make a lot of money in general contracting. You can make a lot of money in podcasting. You can make a lot of money in the NFL, but I can't make the NFL, right? Not everyone's built for the NFL. Not everyone can succeed on a, you know, building an e-commerce website. And, and here's the reality. Many e-commerce and many digitally native brands, we went through a a place where it was very easy to raise money, which is getting harder now, but very hard to make money. Like I, you know, for a while I was going on shows and saying, what e-commerce or DTC brand that's north of $20 million in revenue, which means they're starting to get to scale, is profitable. We talk about like the physical store being a, the differentiator, being a place of experience, or you know, you can have taction and touch the product, and we talk about the physical store being a place to like connect with the consumer. And I, I, I get frustrated when I see all those because my, 
answer is, what about the physical store is the place where the business makes a profit? Because it's a proven profit, it's a proven business that can generate actual ROI. And the percentage of retailers that are profitable physically versus digitally is uncanny. You know, I think there's a lot of false narratives. Why do digitally native brands like go to uh, physical? Well, one of the things that's not talked about enough is it's because they can generate profit and it's very hard to generate profit through e-commerce. And I don't know why this is not talked about enough because the, the cost of growing positive, profitable um, revenue online is significant. Now, the cost of entry to open a physical store is higher. But like when Warby Parker went, went public in the manner they did, there was like a significant percentage, I don't want to quote like mispercentage, there's a significant percentage of the, of the sales were from the retail stores, generated at the retail store level. And they said that like the stores generated like on a single four wall, like, you know, somewhere north of 25, like 30% four wall EBITDA. Yet the company as a whole was unprofitable. So what that told me is they were losing money on online. And now this was my read. I'm not, I'm not an analyst. And so this could be often, don't like put this in a quote, but like they were making money in the physical store. And so, yes, it's a place to connect. Here, here's the punchline. The physical store is a place to connect with your consumer store. The physical store is meeting the consumer where they're at. Sure. The physical store is a place where people can have tact and touch and feel the product. The overall missing link that's not discussed enough is the physical store is a great place to generate a profit, to have a actual profitable business. Yeah. How do you factor in like a co-tenancy strategy into that? Because if you go to any open air retail center, there's where there's a Warby Parker, there's usually a, you know, a taco joint and uh, another place that, that you might want to pop into someplace else and get, you know, you can go Whole Foods and go grocery shopping. So I, I wonder what some of the influences of that profitability are derived from just being surrounded by a community of other retailers that are similar in, in the shopping experience. Whereas if I'm just going to try to buy glasses, I go on to warbyparker.com and I, they ship them to me. I try a few on, I keep the one I like and I send it back. And it's just like this like single um, moment of, okay, I'm done. Whereas you might actually get foot traffic in your physical stores from people who are out and about shopping, just doing other things. And I, that's probably just like a fundamental retail fact, but with online, that's not how people shop, right? It's not like, oh, I'm going to go shop for glasses and then I'm going to go on this ski website and buy some skis and then I'm going to go on an Instacart and buy my groceries. It's like, it seems like those online shopping experiences are singular in nature and they're very targeted for what I'm trying to do. Whereas the physical store has a, a much broader presence when somebody gets out of their car and like walks through a shopping center. You said the first question you asked was how much do I think that factors into it? I would say that's probably, and when you say factors into it, I'm assuming you mean the profit of the retailer. I would say that's the gravy, not the, not the pasta. Um, I think the pasta of that is like, what's the fundamental fact is 
it is much cheaper for Walmart to ship 4,000 items to one store and have you go get it than, and then to ship 4,000 items to 4,000 different homes. And so that is one of two things that have to happen. They have to charge the consumer for shipping and more money, right? It's not just the shipping cost. It's, it's you know, the labor and everything that has to go into that. But, or they lose money. And so if the consumers aren't prepared, like I believe when you say meet the consumer where it is, I believe that what will happen over the next 20 years is I think the convenience of online shopping is going to be price, much pricier. Mm-hmm. And what it's going to be is you're going to be able to have something super convenient. You're going to be able to have something drop to you pretty quickly, but it's going to cost way more than if you went and got it yourself at the store and shop. It's already, that's already happening. You it's know, already like, happening. Yeah. But I think it's right. DoorDash is a good example, right? Like exactly. How much more is DoorDash to ship to you than going to buy? You go, you, you go on DoorDash and you're like, okay, I want to buy like a dinner a for my, my wife and I, and we're, we want to have something quick and cheap, but you end up paying more to actually procure, have it brought to you than the food itself. And you're like, well, Forget that. I'm going to just, I'll cook something instead, or I'll just right. walk down the street, or I'll get in my car and I'll go to pick up a burger. So I, I, it's, unless they take, unless it's just total robots and automation, it's hard to envision that that, that cost can compete with the actual store ever from a profit perspective. The problem that you have is the leaders who have, you know, given free shipping. So to me, this whole concept that we're discussing, like this is the, the foundational pasta of that's like from the economics perspective, right? I, I don't know if you remember when like the one year when Amazon, like I think it was Walmart, where they didn't want you to return the item. Like if they, instead of returning it, they said, just keep it. Just keep it. We'll ship you a new one because it's like, cheaper. Like <laughs> I, you don't have to be in retail or an MBA to know that like, how does that work for a business? Like, I sold you the product, you didn't like it, just keep it, I'll give yeah. you another one. Like, 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 the reason Amazon and like Walmart or whoever else did that, they're of such scale and have such big balance sheets, they could stomach it, because they're right. playing for the next 30 years. But the normal business couldn't stomach that, right? Like, that's like, you're a founder of a company, could you imagine doing that in your business? Like the similar thing, like you would, it would fail. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to sustain that. And so that's how challenging though. That's, we talked about the shipping. That's the reverse logistics costs. That's the, okay, if I return it, right? If my wife orders four, returns three, pays no shipping and no return fee like that. There's a lot of charts that show how much money is lost by doing that, right? And so, so much money that the answer is just keep it. We'll send you another one. Like that's not a sustainable model for most businesses, right? So that's the pasta. The gravy is things like co-tenancy and things like that. Yeah, I think um, we've created this or we've just, it's been this like creeping over reliance on convenience Um, and it'll come it'll come to roost at some point. Like, I don't know if you've been following this potential UPS strike, but there's 340,000 oh, yeah. 340, workers. Air yeah. I mean, it, 
they ship, I think it's, I read an article recently that UPS moves about 6% of the U.S. GDP on a daily basis or an annual basis. Don't quote me on that. But it's like, okay, well, if they go on strike and it's prolonged, then Amazon and FedEx and U.S. Postal Service are just going to get more market share, which means the consumer is going to end up paying more for the shipping. And it's just, it's, it seems unsustainable that online shopping is going to continue to proliferate the way it has. I, I, here's the thing. So I think that's part of the false narrative. It, it, it hasn't proliferated the way it has. It has been around 15% of total somewhere, give or take a couple of points, with the exception of portion of 2020, of total retail sales for a long time. And so, you know, I talked, I interviewed the largest party store online party store operator in Australia. And he was one of the first, he was really good at like Google, you know, uh, Google AdWords and things like this. And so he grew and he's like, you know, he has physical stores as well. And he's like, what's going to be the catalyst that surpasses, you know, over this like 20, 25% of total retail sales, you know, 30% of total retail sales go online. He's like, is it 5G? Like, what is going to do it? The, the two biggest drivers are, you know, of things like that that could be the catapult are time and dollars. And it's pretty clear that making it more affordable, at least any time in the near future, is challenging for the retailers, right? The, in fact, they'll try to drive you to the store. Come to this, you know, pick it up at the store free. Right, that there, you see this buy online, pick up in store, or we'll ship yep. it to you, but you got to pay the shipping. Right, they're trying to incrementally get the consumer hooked that like this convenience has a cost. We're gonna, we'll make it as convenient as you want, but at some point you got to pay for the convenience. Convenience isn't free, or there's the time. Like maybe they'll, you know, maybe consumers will be willing to pay more if they got it in, you know, ten minutes or something like that. Right, which takes a significant amount of dollars to scale up to get to a point where I can deliver it to you in that fashion. Yeah. So we keep coming back to this like, you know, answer that maybe the store is the answer, right? And like, it's like someone, you know, if you think about some of the things we have in society, so, and someone told me this recently, like, like we've accepted it and it's foundational even though maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a bit more primitive. primitive. By example, I don't think anyone's trying to reinvent the toilet right now. We've just accepted like that's it. There's no one out there like it works. It's fine and it's good. Well, it makes you wonder like at some point, are we just going to say that about the store and shopping? Like at the end of the day, like online's great. It's a good, uh, it's a good supplement. It's like convenient. If I want to pay a lot of money for the convenience, we can do it. But at the end of the day, the foundational route is the store. The, the challenge with meeting the consumer where they want to be met with, which I think retailers need to do, is that you should only meet the consumer that makes sense to meet. And the one that buys four, returns three, pays no shipping, pays no return fee, might not be the consumer that you should want to meet where they're at. Right. That's they're the missing customer. narrative of meeting with the consumer where they want to be. Yeah. 
Yeah, because you're not factoring in people's personal preference. You can't solve for everyone's personal preference, right? There's like I, like my wife is constantly getting things shipped to the house constantly. Like every day, there's so, a package, so, and then she's like, "Can you print this return thing at your office for me?" So she's constantly, and she loves it. Like she'd rather not get in the car and drive to a store. So like the, I like I like, but the difference between what you said and what I said is like. <clears throat> You can meet the consumer where they want to be if they're prepared to pay for it, right? The only thing wrong with what your wife wants to do is she doesn't have to pay for it. The moment that that costs hundreds of dollars, which it should, or yeah, she's more, not going to do it anymore. Yeah, right. That that's yeah. the that's the difference, right? Right now, she might not have to do that. You're incrementally seeing businesses start to. Do that we're seeing it in DoorDash and in Instacart. The cost is starting to be borne by the consumer. And then what's happening? That's causing friction, right? People want convenience and want things, you know, like this until it costs hundred of dollars to return it if I don't like it, or hundred dollars for to to get it shipped to me, right? And so to me, what I meant by meeting the consumer we should want to meet the consumer where they want to be. And I think there's a strong place for e-commerce in conjunction with physical retail. I just think the the profit piece isn't discussed enough. And like, I don't know why we're not, you know, why it doesn't get talked about like, hey, wait a second. I can return, I can buy five, return four, pay no shipping, pay no return fees. And this like makes sense for the business. Like at some point, like how does this make sense anymore? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and so, um, yeah. Anyway, I think I'm we rambling. No, no, it's good. I think we closed the case. The store is, the store is the profit center, and it's well, gonna. Well, we we put out a white paper in 2022 called the Store One. W O N, the Store One, and then uh, and you can download that white paper from our website. And then and then this year, we put out a white paper on uh, what we call the breath of open air and why we feel strongly that one of the most undervalued asset classes out there is open air retail and how that's the the bell of the ball of you know where the retailers should want to go and where they are going and um yeah great discussion i um i personally am a physical store shopper so i I agree with you on all this stuff um i think that the narrative of the kind of convenience economy over the last 10, 15 years has been what I just said it was, which is a narrative. And at some point, all of these e-commerce brands, all of these instant delivery brands are going to start to push the cost onto the consumer and people are going to revolt. And you saw this with uh, during COVID, we had all of these um, kind of like instant delivery companies that were setting up all these micro, you know, yeah, fulfillment centers, the and they, they just gone. like, yeah, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think we should we should revisit this conversation again in, in a year or two, and just and see see uh, see how your predictions have have uh, have panned out. Um, let's use the last couple minutes here for some rapid fire questions. If if you're game, let's go. All right. Well, you started talking about pasta and gravy, so I guess question number one is. What is your favorite pasta dish? Lasagna. You can't go Count wrong with that. it. Yeah, that's definitely a pasta dish. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Always go for seconds too. 
<laughs> if you had to um, pick one person, um, dead or alive, to sh- share a plate of lasagna with, who would it be? There's so many. I've answered this. I've answered this with like so many different people. Uh, <clears throat> one I haven't said before. Uh, I'll say Steve Jobs. It's a kind of a uh, you know that's a that's a pretty popular one. I'll give a I'll give a I'll give a probably not one that's said so much. I'll say Steve Prefontaine. Yeah. Right before a race. Yeah, you go. Like Probably not eating pot, a lasagna before a four-minute mile, but yeah. um, question three: uh, as a as a family man, first, what uh, what are what's the most important lesson that you teach your kids? Um, so my kids are six. My daughter just turned six. My son just um, uh, he'll turn five in. Uh, September so uh, you know I don't love the question because I think there's a lot of different lessons to learn like literally last night my son drew on the wall and my my wife came down in the playroom and said hey there's yellow pen on the wall who drew this and he said I don't know and he's four and then, you know, she got him to tell the truth. And she was like, listen, I'm disappointed that you drew on the wall, but, you know, I'm more disappointed that you didn't tell the truth and I'm upset about that. And, you know, then they went up to watch a show like 40 minutes later and he like started to like get upset because he's like, I'm so sorry that I didn't tell you the truth, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, clearly, you know, that's, you know, honesty is an important lesson in our teaching, but like, on a Saturday, if you went to my four or six-year-old, you know, I'm, I'm big into sports and I think they're a good training for, um, if you called my kids right now, they're good training for life. And if you called my kids right now and you asked them, what do you do when you get tired? They'll tell you, keep going. So anyway. Yeah, that's two good lessons. Tell the truth and work hard, right? <laughs> there you go. Um, question four, if you, had, if you could choose one superpower, uh, what would it be? Photographic memory. You don't have a photographic memory? I mean real photographic. I have a good memory. Like everything that you've ever seen ever, like you have like an index of it in your head and you couldn't remember it? So every year I try to create, yes, I try to create a new skill and, uh, or not create, learn a new skill. And uh, I didn't do it this year, but there, I found this guy, Chester Santos, who's the U.S. memory champion. I didn't know that was a thing. Me either. But, but if I interviewed, I ended up interviewing him on a podcast, and he put me through a memory exercise that was wild. It's like seven minutes. You can find it. It's awesome. I brought him on my show, and then anyway, I said to him, like, he's like, so you know, I was like talking to him about like lessons to like work on memory, and he said to me, like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to walk in a room, remember forever, never forget everything that was said on command, on demand. I want to never have to take a note. I want to never have to use a calendar. And yeah, and he goes, oh, we could get that stuff done in like a month. And so like, <laughs> like what, have I, what have I been doing my whole life? <laughs> and so I was like, wow, 
the price was expensive. And like I actually sat down with my wife and talked about it. She's like, if you could actually do that, like I'm sure the return on investment is going to pay in spades. But it was, it was sizable. Anyway, the – yeah, like if you could remember from age one day old every single thing on demand till now, that's yeah. what I would want. Yeah, that would probably change your life significantly. That's the one. It would have made me a better student. I can tell you that. I would have been able to retain everything I was told to read in, in college. And you got it. Had a perfect GPA. Last question. Um, we asked this of everyone on the show. If if uh, you could think of two people that we should invite on this podcast, who, who comes to mind? That's a great. And we'd are ar- we've already had Adam on, by the way. So I'm gonna steal that one from you because that's a you, great one. You can. I'll loan it to you for a little while. Okay. Um, so the way I think about it is I would love for you to bring a retailer on who's in the corporate real estate world. I don't know if you've had many of them. We've had a bunch of retailers on. I don't know oh, have? I don't know how many big corporate retailers that we've had on, but um, I would love to interview someone in that realm. Like someone, you know, someone who's the real estate director for somebody. Um, so I think one you should interview Val, but I think you should interview Val Richardson. Okay. She's the COO of ICSC, and she's the former head of real estate for the Container Store. She gives some interesting perspectives. Um, a friend of mine, I think, would be good, uh, Beth Azor. I have another friend who I do a, a, a once-a-month morning show called What's in Store, and I do that with Carly Iacono, so she's pretty She's good. been on the pod. Okay. And then, uh, you know, I think, like, a retailer of, like, who's – working on explosive growth. I think that's, that's an interesting one. So like, you know, the head of real estate at Five Below is a friend of mine named Zach Mintier. I think he'd be a good one. Um, you know, my friend Brian Finnegan's the head of leasing of Bricksmore and, and they have such a large scale of retail real estate. I think he'd be interesting. He's got an interesting perspective. So that's more than two. I love I'm it. Steal yours. I love it. I got four or five out of you. It's amazing. Chris, thanks for joining the show. If people wanted to find you, your podcast, DLC Management, how would they do that? So uh, you can go to DLC's website. You go to my LinkedIn. Uh, you can go to iTunes, Amazon, you know, Spotify, whatever your listening pleasure, and check it out. Yeah, all it's over the place. Retail Retold. Yeah. All right, Chris Ressa, thanks for your time, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.